You're listening to Transplaner RPG, an all-transgender, people-of-color-led, dark-fantasy actual play channel set in an original non-colonial, anti-orientalist multiverse. The Chaos Protocol is our second main campaign and stars Valiant Dorian, Kai Kay, and Sam Starr as players, with C. Thomas as the producer and Connie Chong as the game master. Transplaner RPG is sponsored by Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines, has asked us to say, and I quote, Please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon, because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy failing upward, and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and thank you so much for supporting our work. Content warnings for this episode may include trauma, complex and complicated relationships, interpersonal conflict, food and eating, pollution, bug horror, animal horror, swarms, snakes, romance, apocalypse, environmental collapse, and war. Arc 1, Episode 10. Raise Hungry Tides. From Self-Eulogy of a Martyr by Connie Chong. Lumira, Seir, Zainan. The three of you jolt awake at the exact same time in your separate bedrooms. Your bodies are drenched with sweat. Your hearts are pounding. Your vision swims with images of these nightmares that were plaguing you just seconds ago. Zainan, you gain the whisper dust to dust. Seir, you gain the whisper in the blood. Lumira, you gain the whisper beneath the surface. And your party as a collective gains the whisper oil, ash, flame. So, a whisper is a special type of resource in the Wild Sea RPG. I'm going to touch upon it really quickly here because it's unique to this game. It is a wild secret that jumps from mind to mind, a parasitic phrase with a will of its own. However, they can only hold power in one mind at a time, and when spoken, the whisper is lost. They usually worm their way into a wild sailor's head when witnessing the horrors and wonders of the Verdant Sea, or they can even be bartered for. They're dangerous, but they're also useful. Any one of you can use a whisper in your possession to discover secret information related to their wording by whispering them under your breath. You can also spend a whisper to shift the narrative of the world in your favor by speaking it out loud, which lets you make a twist related to the whisper, no matter what you get on a roll. And finally, you can use a whisper to force a change by shouting it out loud, creating a high-impact twist that the Firefly, or the GM myself, gets to create. So players, don't forget you have these resources in your possession now that you can use at any time. Now, as we come back to the waking world, I want to know what each of you do to start off your morning after last night's turbulent dreams, starting with Sayer. Sayer, as he leaps off from the bed, I imagine there's a part of the bed that is cut by the bangles on his tail from how much he was thrashing around last night. And he just sits up on his bed, curls his tail over his lap, sits cross-legged. When he's 
shaking. Terrified, he still feels there that heat on his chest. And he mutters to himself, It's okay, it's okay. Just like Dr. Wong has given you before. Just breathe through it. Breathe, breathe. And he begins an exercise of breathing. Taking a few seconds to inhale deeply, hold, and exhale in that entirety. It helps with the heart rate. It doesn't help with the heat. Mm. Sayer, as you sit up, try to breathe. From the corner of your eye, you notice that your shadow sits up, maybe half a second delayed. Starts to breathe in conjunction with you, but slightly out of sync. And as you startle, it startles like half a second too late. Sayer kind of like leans closer to it and is just swishing his tail like a cat curious at a movement on the wall. You see your tail also swish, the shadow of it, in perfect synchronicity now to you. Just my imagination, it's fine. Just my imagination. And he just kind of like grasps onto his chest and in his mind's eye pushes that imagery of fire deeper and deeper, hoping that it will quench the flame even just a little bit. And as he gets ready for the day, all he can hear is that minute gasp that Cove lets out in that memory. Lumira, I want to know what you do to start off your morning. Lumira wakes up, I think, mid-scream. She doesn't realize it until she stops herself. And, like, as she goes to, like, wipe her face, she realizes she was crying. She didn't even realize it. She hasn't woken up crying in so long. And then I think all of the dream starts rushing back to her and she starts that rushed, panicked breathing again. She kind of scooches back in the bed that she's at to kind of center herself against the wall and trying to find like that grounding space for her before she's like sits deep in it for a second and remembers the breathing technique Sayer taught her when they were younger. It's always seemed to help. So she starts that rhythmic breathing of holding it in, breathing it out, taking it in again. And before she even realizes it, she gets up. Like once she calms down, she gets up to go find Sayer, but then remembers our fight. And right as she goes to grab the doorknob, she kind of lets go of it, almost as if the doorknob is hot. And she'll go back over and sit on the edge of her bed and just sit there for a second. Zainan, how are you starting off your morning? It feels many mornings for Zainan on the Wild Sea, at Trans, on other missions before. First thing in the morning, pretty much the same. Like he's swallowed a very heavy stone. 
and we see him looking in the mirror, the sound of bags being packed at trans at home. And we look in the mirror, and in it, he does not have his green markings yet. And he just takes a long look, his bare face not yet holding the green marks that almost everyone sees him wear every day. But on the ledge right next to the mirror is a small bag. In every place, it's a little different. Sometimes it's a jar, sometimes it's a paste. But every place they go, he has something, a green to remember. And we see him just very slowly dab some of it on his finger and drag over his face the green markings that just glow ever so slightly in the otherwise unremarkable space as he quietly begins his morning like every morning. I think eventually all three of you staggering in, not all simultaneously, but eventually all three of you do find your way above deck. The events of last night's nightmares still vivid in your head. They don't just vanish like so many other random dreams. They stay there for a moment. They haunt you in the back of your minds. And in stark contrast to that, the sun is shining. The weather is fair, the air is brisk and cold and fresh, and an ocean of vegetation rustles around Storm Chaser. The slight hum of the ship's voltaic runners vibrates soothingly in the air, and Abasi has set up a breakfast table with a couple of chairs, a couple of stools arranged around it. And the food on the table is nothing especially special. There's dried jerky, canned fish, jarred fruits, typical wild sea rations, but there's also a pot of buttery, freshly made grits that Abasi is currently working a wooden spoon around. And for each plate spread across this table, every bowl, there's also a stack of papers or a mishandled book. Some of you recognize some of these tomes from being inside the temple, while others appear to be and as your party steps out onto this main deck, Abasi kind of lifts her eyes from the grits and smiles at each of you in turn. And as far as you can tell, she looks normal, uh, undisturbed, right? A broad-shouldered, black-haired, steely-eyed. Good morning, late risers. Please help yourselves to some breakfast. I found a sack of hominy in the cargo hold and a surprising amount of spices, so enjoy my father's recipe. How the four of you sleep? And we also see surfacing up out from the uh, quarters, Sing. Sing is a, a uncharacteristically kind of quiet, I think, this morning. Uh, the cherry blossoms falling thoughtfully around her head as she takes steps forward toward the breakfast table. Her pink eyes look distracted, and she's not the first to respond to Abasi. I think Zainan is. And he just kind of smiles, smells good and steps up to the table. Good, good. Well, I would hope so. If it smelled bad, then, well, my dad would be very displeased with how I'm messing up his recipe. Come on in. Uh, any allergies I should be aware of? No? Okay, good. She starts spooning grits into your bowl. Much appreciated. And I think Lumira sits on the far opposite side of the table. Thayer stands there for a moment, kind of feeling the space between everybody. 
And I think watching Zainan behave normally, the red flowers, the hibiscus-like buds open a little bit more in stark contrast as Sayer watches Lumira's back march towards the end of the table, the orchids shut, and his eyes linger on Sing, and his cherry blossoms also fall thoughtfully. And Connie, I want to ask you a question that I should have asked you before. What flower would you associate with Abasi? Oh my god! Um, give me one second. Let's go! <laughs> Not me derailing this whole thing with flower language. I was like, wait, hold on. <laughs> uh, Got a question uh, I wasn't expecting. Uh, a sword lily. Sword lilies kind of bloom a little clumsily along Sayer's hair, kind of like sprouting out like daisies really randomly. And he looks over at Abasi and just on his way to walk over, he kind of uh, shoulder checks Abasi a little bit and just says, morning, thanks for the food. <laughs> morning, you grumpy face. Uh, she spoons some grits into your bowl as well and kind of presses against you more closely and privately as she's giving you this food and says privately to you so no one else can hear at the table. Hey, so uh, pretty intense night last night. You can be kind of an ass, huh? I'm sorry, I just need to make sure I heard that correctly. Did a bossy call me an ass? Yes! Okay. Yes, she did! I love her! I think you see, like, Sayer just hears that and just, like, grumbles and says, Yeah. Yeah, it can be. Not meeting her gaze closes in on himself and just sits at the table and just grips his knee really grumpily. Abasi kind of nudges you like with, with a foot, I think, as he sits down and says mm-hmm. to you kind of still privately like, hey, 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 I'm not judging, okay? Been there, done that, believe me. Listen, uh, people like us, kind of hot-headed, impulsive. I get what it means to not be able to control ourselves all the time, but um, my mom always says, doesn't mean I'm not responsible for what I say or do. If you want to talk about it, I mean, hell, we've got hours to burn, days. Oh, I'll take you up on that sometime. He's still really awkward. He doesn't know how to talk about it. His gaze flits wildly between Zainan, Singh, and Lumira and back onto Abasi and just kind of like sits really awkwardly. I'm assuming we're sitting, sat next to each other and knees are mm-hmm. touching and he's just kind of like, yeah, hours and days, huh? And he just looks over at Lumira, voice catches in his throat, shovels a big spoonful of grits into his mouth. This is great. It tastes amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Singh looks between Sayer and Lumira and then Abasi and finally pipes up and says, Good morning, princess. What with all the books? Are we eating these as well? Oh, these? No, 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 no. Uh, some of these you might recognize from my, you know, little hideout. 
Other of these I found in the captain's quarters, actually. Seems like a certain Queen Hylian Mylesia might not have done her due diligence in clearing everything out before we got here. Uh, check this out, actually. And she points at like an open, what appears to be some kind of naval report right next to the bowl of grits that she's splattered a couple of spoonfuls of porridge onto. She kind of like flips through it and kind of taps, taps a passage. Now, I think that's pretty interesting. And all of you can sort of read this passage, and it seems to be a report from someone called Captain Juniper Stovall. And the report reads, The ashen grow bold in our protectorates to the far west. Activity detected as close as marrow and as far as the plunge. First-hand visual confirmation of piracy, marauding, pollution, poaching, even deep root drilling. Seven ships confirmed in fleet, ranging from small to large, attempts to engage are so far unsuccessful. That's really all I found in the captain's quarters that was of any interest. It seems bad. Do pirates have a fleet of seven ships? No. No, not usually. But the Ashen are kind of, you know, they're not exactly pirates, I guess. What do you mean? Who exactly are the Ashen? Oh, they're, uh... She puts a big spoonful of grits in her mouth and talks through it. They're just a bunch of freaks, you know? One of the many weirdos on the fringes of the wild sea. I've never really met anyone involved with them personally. Let's not call them freaks just because they're different from what you deem as normal. Let's try that again. Oh no, they're they're freaks. They 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 carve through the verdancy with these rusty saw blades. They leave all kinds of crap in their wake. Pollution, you know. They don't really care. Oh, this is delicious. They've even got these like huge junks with these ugly metal rigs on them that supposedly drill into the sink and the drown, but I think that's a load of ball. Isn't that kind of dangerous? Oh yeah, super dangerous. But again, they're, and she pauses looking at Lumira, weirdos. So, you know, I guess they don't really care about danger. Well, it seems as though we have our work cut out for us. You said they leave things behind. Mm-hmm. Where are they known to sit at? Or will be, is it just all over? Honestly, mostly just the fringes of the wild seeds. They're really not a big problem. They're not a threat at all. I honestly think this report is kind of like, honestly, whoever this universe Oval person, super mega drama queen, like overreacting. They're just a bunch of stinky assholes. You know, they're not like an actual organized threat. Okay, but what about a, okay, this, don't laugh. Okay, now I'm gonna laugh. What about a dragon? Abasi pauses, cocks her head, looks at you. What do you mean? Dragon points to the sky as he says that he, the more, the longer this draws out, you can tell that he's like, what if I stop speaking immediately? But he continues to say the words. <laughs> I think there's a, a, a brief moment of quiet as all of you register what Zainan said and kind of turn in his direction, Abasi's spoon halfway between bowl and mouth, porridge dripping onto her fingers. She waggles a spoon in your direction and says, with her eyes widening with recognition, oh shit, actually what you're saying, I had the weirdest dream last night. <laughs> like the weirdest dream. Actually, all four of you were in it. You first, points at Sing. Then you, points at Zainan. Then you, points at Seir. Then you, points at Lumira. And then I had the same dream I always do, but you all were there, which was new. You always have that dream? My, my dragon dream? 
Wait, you know about it? That type of terror is common for you. Um, well, I wouldn't say, okay, I wouldn't call it a terror, <laughs> all right? Buzzy Zahar's not scared of anything. Uh, but I would say, yeah, it's been um, plaguing me probably for the past couple weeks, maybe months. Every night, I fall asleep and I see it. Months or weeks? Months, months, months. All right. Like half a year, maybe. And Zynan looks to everybody else at the table, clocking that they are also now participating in this conversation. Sayer is fiddling with his chest really anxiously underneath his white shirt. He is fiddling with it. He's touching it. And I think when you brought up the dragon, the red flowers open up a bit more, like more sun has poured into them. And he just says, um, in what usually happens in your dream from start to finish, usually? Uh, well, it's, um, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's like we're at the bottom of the wild sea, but obviously that's just, I mean, it's a dream, right? The darkness under eaves, no one's ever been there and lived to tell the tale, but it's like I'm at the bottom of the wild sea uh, and everything's really messed up. You know, all the trees aren't looking good. They're looking pretty bad, looking pretty crappy, crappy day for the trees. Uh, and then this huge dragon thing with um, spines that look like buildings. And this is Sing. Yeah. Yeah, buildings, yeah, 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 like buildings and, and, and weird things, like metal structures and oil rigs, super highways. No idea what that second word was, but yeah, oil rig things and super whatevers, and, and it, it then everything turns to fire. And ash. And flame. Sayer says nothing, but stares at Sing. And it speaks to you, right? And at that, Abbasi blinks and looks at Sing, like this is new information. No. Doesn't. Wait, how do the rest of you? And then Storm Chaser shakes. On the horizon, in front of you, so to the south, shadow wells, cresting the leafy ridges of the wild sea, springing from branch to branch with claw-topped hooves, braying in fear, confusion, rage, urgency, and rushing like a black waterfall over the emerald fronds of the verdancy is the stampede. Tens, dozens, hundreds of creatures scramble over the waves, rat roaches with hard furry shells and six skittering legs, snowflies buzzing in frantic white clouds, copper-clad scorpions scuttling sideways across brachiating twigs, manticrows blackening the air with their eye-dappled wings, diamond vipers hissing through the grass, slinks stealthing through the thrash, squirrels, grove gulls, chime star bats, lanku, thorn sails, tinker monkeys, even a pack of pinwolves, vicious and muscled, their sharp stiletto limbs dancing over the waves with horrific grace. Every single creature is covered in oil. Thick, black, greasy oil shimmers on feathers, on tufts of matted fur, on scales, on exposed plates of bone, on skin, on hair, on hoof and nail and horn and claw. The oil gives the stampede the appearance of a living, writhing mass of shadow on the southern horizon, moving closer and closer to Storm Chaser with every passing second. 
before your crew can truly react to this, it's upon you. A sea of squirrels skitters along the railings, the banisters, the deck, snapper pillars surge past the hull, rocking the voltaic runners with their chitinous heft. Vipers slither through the branches that surround you. The air begins to thicken with swarms of flying fish, dark with oil, their glowing gas bladders bobbing like fireflies. Within moments, Storm Chaser is overrun. So is your breakfast table. Sayer, Zainan, and Lumira. How do the three of you evade, fight off, or brace against this sudden stampede? Lumira sees right on the horizon this threat coming near, and she's quickly assessing the table, what is there to use that's effective. And she sees the big, pot of grits that Abasi was just cooking and she just picks it up and launches the bubbling hot grits at the biggest fucking monster that's coming directly towards the table. Sure. We call it the Grit Maw. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That's an action roll. That sounds to me like teeth or iron, <laughs> but you can sell an edge to me. I will take iron. Okay, iron. Iron's cool, and I will... I will ask to use either brace or sense, whatever you mm. think would be better of the I think two. brace. Brace makes sense. You're just hoofing it forward. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Make that roll. I am going to cut one for difficulty. There are so many animals, and the grits are kind of hot. Fair enough, fair enough. That's a hot three. Oh no. And a two. That's a disaster. So a scarred pinwolf hits the deck. It's huge, it's the size of like a dire wolf. It's large. Its stiletto limbs are kind of spidering all over the broadwood. And a pinwolf, for those of you who don't know, body like a wolf, face open sideways, uh, snarling teeth, a tongue that forks and can grab, and instead of claws, just sharp needle-like points. So they skitter, they like skitter like spiders or water bugs. Hits the deck, its pin-like limbs jab into the broadwood. You you lift the grids. Tell me how you're hawking at this thing. I think it's probably like the equivalent of like what you would do if you had a bucket full of water and was tossing it on a fire, just like a of just trying yep. to like huck the contents out onto this the pin wolf. Yes, skittering, <laughs> fucking terrifying nightmare monster. Yeah, and. I think what happens is in her frantic rushness, she grabs a side of the pot that's still hot. And as she throws it, it's too hot for her hand. So like she has to let it go and it just kind of like plops. <laughs> yeah, it plops to the side. Some of it splashes onto the pinwolf. All it does is get its attention on you. And you're going to take one point of flame damage from like the burn of it. So just mark off a track on that. And you're mm -hmm. also going to take one point of blood damage. As this thing, you think maybe it wants to stab you to death at first, but then it just skitters right past. It's covered in oil. It just seems frantic. It's not here to hunt. It's here to just get the hell away from something. It just 
bumps into you and then like skitters right past you, knocks you onto the ground. So that's what's gonna happen okay. with your disaster. You're completely prone, covered in grits. A bossy is shouting, my grits! What the fuck is happening? Who's next? I think Zynan, who was leaned in pretty intently in the conversation, just hears this oncoming swarm and reacts, but you can't shoot a swarm. That's just not helpful. And so he sees it coming, and by the time he's like up, he set down his bowl very nicely, which is hilarious because it gets knocked over pretty promptly. But he stands, and as he does, he grabs that weird drifting dust between his finger and his boot, and from it, a blade, a short blade? No. As he pulls it, what should be a blade that's only about a foot grows and grows, but it just is solid dust. Like he pulled it out of the nightmare he just had last night. And it seems to just wilt slowly dust into the air and he stabs it into the table to hold himself there and just brace as this swarm passes through. Sounds like iron embrace to me as well. May I pitch teeth? Yeah. Yeah, that's just pure passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll let that happen. I would usually cut one for how overwhelming the swarm is, but you're using a tool, so that's a plus one, so that's just a neutral. So don't add one for advantage. That went on a whole journey, but I got a six with a twist. A six with a twist? Yes. So as you brace, these oil slick creatures just past you. Thankfully, none of them actually want to hurt any of you. They're just scrambling and just trying to get away. Uh, You are left with this slick kind of oily residue all over your body. And I think there's kind of like a big rocking motion as right next to you, right on the hull to the port side, a snapper pillar begins clambering past the ship with these multiple pin-shaped legs. Legs also similar to a pinwolf, but this creature is kind of like a cross between a massively armored crocodile and like a a long caterpillar. It has a star-shaped mouth that opens in multiple directions, also lined with teeth. And its hardened carapace is kind of like, like starting to gouge into the side of the ship, uh, but not enough to actually damage it. As that happens though, You're completely braced, you're not gonna take any damage. The twist I'm gonna give you is part of the snapper pillar's carapace snaps off. And the angle at which it snaps off, it kind of whirls through the air like a coin and lands perfectly in your bowl, which is now covered in oil, with like a splash, right? And you see like a piece of oil slick chitinous armor that's right there for you. And you can add that to your resource list as a specimen. So you are going to get an oil slick chitin plate as a specimen. You can add that to your inventory. Sayer, how are you dealing with this? We are being swarmed and canned in. We cannot linger here. We have to move past this or we'll be overrun. And Sayer, at first, is pushing through all of these beasts with his bare hands, not thinking to equip his blades before coming up to the deck for breakfast. Sees uh, Lumira get battered down and he hears the echo of Zina's voice in his head. Use your head. And he sees us being overrun and he looks at our wires. Connected to the engine, connected to the runners. And he looks over at Abasi and goes, Hey, Bossy, 
Go to steer. I'm giving us extra juice. And he's going to squat down, put his fingers on the exposed wires. He didn't get a chance to fully cover. And I want to channel all of my electricity into the wires so that we can overrun these guys. I love it. Abasi is like just standing there. She's bracing fully, not being knocked back by the tide. She turns like waist high in just these skittering oil slick squirrels. What? You'll fry yourself to a crisp. God, what the fuck? Fine. But you better not die. And she starts like swarming through the stampede going up to the steering wheel. So that's going to be some kind of roll. I would like to submit a, a teeth and brace. Yeah, sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Roll for it. I'm going to cut one for how freaking dangerous this is. Oh, You're Connie, I will fire. meet your cut and I will cut for impact. So I will. So I, I, I take Did your you cut. Did you just pull a cut your cut? I will. Uh, Did you just pull a cut your no, cut? I, I, you will cut me and I will also cut myself. I want the impact. We're getting out okay. of here. Yeah, so what that means is when someone cuts for impact, they can willingly minus a d6 from their pool to increase the effectiveness of their roll if they do succeed. It's a risk. It's a gamble. It could pay off. Cut for yep. two. Go for Cut it. for two. Yep. So that's three d6. Only one of these d6s could do it. So let's see. Come on. Ooh, okay. Okay. That's not bad. That is a six and a four and a four. Cut Woo! two. That is a four. <laughs> With a twist, with that a is twist. a conflict with a twist. Yes, uh, you grab onto this exposed wire. Abasi's at the helm. She was able to just like muscle her way through the stampede with no problem, right? It's like it, it, it's like she is an immovable force and like a, a unstoppable uh, force of energy as well. At the wheel, she like punches some buttons, starts like turning some levers and whatnot, and you feel like the voltaic runners like jumping up a level, and you feel electricity beginning to surge through your body, and we see this like pure, uh, just violently bright white lightning shoot off of your body in these like unstable uh, scissoring sparks, uh, but you're holding on, right? And you're also imbuing the wire with your own energy. What does it look like? It starts off blue and sparking into the boards beneath him. But as he feels that focus and that trust and he hears Zynan's voice again in his head, a good fighter finds the edges. He just needs to find the edges. And he squats even lower, and I think you see his antlers spark off with blue electricity, then turn obsidian and black. And that pulses, instead of sparking outwards, they spark down his arms and his body, and you see the markings of electricity down his arms and chest black and obsidian, and he feels it. He's just finding that edge before explosiveness, before ruin, before calamity. You are walking the fine line between power and disaster. You would light up in a blaze of electricity and light. And the voltaic runners at the bottom of the hull let out a and Storm Chaser lifts up even higher up above the undulating waves of the thrash and Abasi 
turns the wheel, rocks it to the side, and from above we see this ship like groaning off to the side and like moving perpendicularly out of the stampede, right? Abasi's being smart, she's moving it away instead of just like continuing to, to uh, guide it upstream against it. And finally, all of Storm Chaser is out into safety, away from this black oil slick river of rampaging creatures and animals. And like, there's like a as like the last of the electricity fizzles out, you're unable to like keep it going anymore without injuring yourself. Um, the twist I'm gonna give you is you, in addition to Lumira, get to sense what happens next as you are, in this moment, intimately connected to Storm Chaser. Three things happen for you, Sayer. Oh no. One, you're gonna take some damage from just, mm -hmm. that was still a, a conflict. You're going mm -hmm. to have to mark two points of volt damage. Mm -hmm. So mark two on a track. Yep. The second thing is, your shadow moves independently of you. As the light sparks off of your shoulders, you see jittering shadows in all multitudes of directions on the broadwood at your feet. Mm -hmm. And they're all moving independently of you. Some are looking up at the sky. Others are trying to like crane, it appears, to look over the railing. But most of them are just looking at you. Heads tilted, antlers cocked, curious, and you almost get a sense that these shadows appear impressed by you, but then that last burst of light dies down and it's just your one regular shadow and it doesn't move independently of you at all. And the third thing is this. Even as the last of the oil slick stampede continues charging north, something massive begins to rock the wild sea underneath Storm Chaser. It comes from east to west, so it's cutting perpendicularly across the stampede's path, which is directly where your ship has been guided to. It's huge. It feels like maybe a, a root quake. You'd heard that term thrown around a few times by now. Basically the equivalent of an earthquake, but on the wild sea. At first you think it's a root quake, and even Abasi shouts, Duck! Everyone brace! I think there's a quake coming! But root quakes don't travel from direction to direction. Something deeper than the thrash, maybe in the tangle, maybe even in the sink and the drown, the much lower layers of the verdancy, is traveling, is moving, shaking the branches, causing the leaves to tremble like they are terrified. And from above, we see a rustling of something gigantic moving in that direction from east to west. And it moves directly underneath your ship. And for a second, it's like it pauses there and Abasi's face is pale, her eyes are wide and she just kind of lets out a, underneath her breath, Leviathan? And then it moves on. It continues rustling the waves, tremoring them, shaking them, causing Storm Chaser, even though it's levitating above the waves, to tremble in terror. Continues moving west. And then it's gone. In the moment where it paused under Storm Chaser, Lumira, you had calibrated Storm Chaser's engine. There's a part of you that's still connected to the Arconautic force that powers this ship. You, and now Seir, because in this moment you're, you're directly hardlined into Storm Chaser itself, hear that of the engine increase to 
as that thing was paused underneath it. And then it slows down again as it leaves. What did you call that? Uh, I thought maybe it was... I thought maybe it was a Leviathan. A what? You know, one of the huge... Just a wild sailor's tale, you know. A, a huge beast that lives in the sink and the drown. Sometimes they, they come up to the tangle to feed. That's what everyone says, but I've never believed it. Thayer clutches his chest, kind of like when he was connected to the engine, it almost feels like something beating against his own chest. And he touches his chest. Oh, that must be real. And Connie, before we go forward, I have a question about rules and mechanics really quick. Go ahead. I have a trait called Zero Days, where once per scene, I can ignore any damage to myself that comes as a result of my own destructive actions. So you how know does what? That work? Yeah, this would apply. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Amazing. so you just wouldn't mark the vault damage. Yeah. Amazing. You just wouldn't so mark the two vault damage. I'll yeah. mark the trait then that I've used it. Hee <laughs> hee. All right. Yes. Just wanted to make sure. Yes. Yeah, no, you, you got it. As you let go uh, of the copper wiring, we see that you're completely unsinged, unhurt. Just like that vision of Artemis in your own dream. Seer. Sina. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. I just felt something down there. There is something down there. Sing rises from where she was knelt by the banister, and we see that she has a handful of just like slick oil in her palm. She's frowning down at it. She, like Abasi, had braced very easily as soon as the stampede came, turns to face your party, eyebrows wrinkled as the last of the oil kind of like sloughs past her fingers, dribbles onto kind of like the broadwood and is lost. But she holds onto this a little bit and says, this oil, it, there's something, I don't think this is just oil. There's, there's something else going on. And I, I, I'm sorry. I need a minute to just, um, I just, um, sorry about breakfast. Take your time. Yeah. Um, thanks, Ainan. Uh, and Singh shakes her head and retreats below deck in a very uncharacteristically unsing-like move. Ever since the morning, she's been acting off. But she kind of goes off by herself. Abasi kind of like brushes herself, like turns the ship again, right? And starts like resetting the course. And as she does, Abasi says, well, good news, bad news, depending on how you slice it, our path is probably going to take us parallel to wherever the stampede came from. So we're probably going to find out what caused it. What's the good news? That might have been the good news if you're like into that sort of investigatory stuff. Sure, yeah. Uh, all right. You've never seen anything like this before? I've heard, you know, of, of all the calamities on the Wild Sea. This has got to be one of them, right? I mean, all the signs match up. Oil, creatures behaving in strange ways. Now a potential freaking Leviathan appearance. Have you ever heard of any of these creatures having any type of special effects on any materials? here. What do you mean? Like a leviathan? It felt weird under the ship when it was near. Like the engine sped up. Like it was anxious or nervous. Maybe even scared. Oh! 
Okay, well, well, engines aren't... Engines are sentient. That was probably just me. I was really trying to get the ship away from the Leviathan, so probably I just, you know, pumped some juice. Thanks, Ayer, in the engine's direction. Probably what you felt. Hmm. Ayer looks at Lumira from the other side of the ship where he is at when she makes this point. And the gaze is met briefly before he just looks away again. She does not meet your gaze at all. She won't look in your direction, actually. She will turn and walk where Singh retreated to, actually. So you'll be looking at her back. Yeah, Lumira, you retreat below deck, kind of like, and I think the party starts to disperse some more. Abasi focuses on steering again. Who, uh, Zainan, do you think you could keep a lookout for me? You know, just for a little bit, at least. Yeah, I'm headed up. Yep, thanks. Yeah. And I think your party kind of like scatters like this and we hold on you for a second, Sayer, standing there alone as everyone else disperses, still feeling that <laughs> of the engine humming in your blood like electricity. So as we travel, the Wild Sea is a level six plane, meaning it is vast. Sailing it takes time. Storm Chaser cuts through the northern swell, which is the vast leafy expanse between Siren Song and the Raya, which are now trawling. And the vegetation here is lush. It is verdant. There are broad, dewy fronds, tangled heaps of vines, thorny weeds, sturdy branches. And yet, as you continue south, the Stampede's trail is unmistakable. You basically sail parallel to a path of oil-slick leaves with precious few insects, birds, and other wildlife around. You sail for hours, and you encounter no ships as you do, no other spits, no islands, not even the barest suggestion of mortal life. The Wild Sea is a level six plane, and level six planes are vast. As morning turns to afternoon, the weather starts to thicken. Clouds coagulate, humidity rises, dewdrops bead on the copper siding of Storm Chaser's hull, and the exposed wires all around hum with a kind of nervous electricity. Abasi spends most of her time at the helm. Occasionally, Singh will come up to relieve her of her duties. She seems to have taken a vested interest in learning how to properly pilot a wild sea ship. And the chosen one still seems, I think, a bit dampened by last night's happenings. But after the hours roll on, she takes on a kind of more relaxed demeanor. And with the wind kind of billowing in her white mane and the cherry blossoms drifting from her shoulders, she looks like a proper wild sea captain. As time goes on, I want to know how each of you are spending your time aboard Storm Chaser. And I'd like to start with Lumira. So I think there's a moment as you kind of follow Singh underneath to the passenger's quarters, and you kind of see her in the hallway. She has stopped outside of her door and has rested a palm against it and seems to be like having the other one against her sternum and is doing some kind of breathing exercise. Hey. Hey. In, out. Oh, uh. Lumira, hi. Hey, shh. In. One, two, three. Out. Three, four, five, six. You're fine. Thanks, Lou. I just, I... 
So you had that nightmare too, didn't you? It wasn't just the dream. You and Abasi and Seir and Zion and we were all there. In the darkness under eaves. I had that and a bit more. A bit more? I'd rather not get into it right now. It's not important. Right, yeah, I understand. Um, yeah. I, I, I... I had a bit more too, I guess, but, um... I'm just... I, I... And there's a moment as vulnerability teams on the surface of Sing's expression. Her pink eyes meet yours. And then that vulnerability, you see her just sort of like lock it down. She pulls it back deep inside herself and pulls up a smile. (laughs) Well, level six plane, I suppose. But, you know, what good is, is... being the chosen one is is being strike team Nova if we don't face obstacles that are worthy of our heroism. Know what I mean? I think in that moment, as Sang was composing themselves, Lumira was doing the same and was grateful for that bit that neither of them had to acknowledge it, but they were able to take that time to center themselves together in that moment. Mm. It is never in level six plane without extensive exploration. Are you (laughs) sure you're up for it? Are you sure you're up for it? I am up for anything that involves you. So am I. As long as I've got you by my side, I know I can get through anything. She like smirks, nods her head at that, but doesn't say more. (laughs) Just kind of sits in it. Um, I think I'm gonna go uh, journal for like a couple minutes. That helps. If there's anything I've learned in my years, sometimes journaling is helpful. (laughs) Sometimes it's not, but other times it is. You strike me as a journaling type, Lumira. I bet your handwriting is much cleaner than mine. I bet you it is. (laughs) No offense. (laughs) None taken. (laughs) And I think the two of you laugh, and that tension, that hardness, it feels like it's softened. feels like it's broken, right? It's still there, but the two of you have each other. You have this moment, and it does break the storm a bit. There's a moment as Sing smiles at you, places a a hand tentatively at first on your shoulder, but then, like, squeezes it a bit, nods, then she kind of turns and goes off into her room. When the door closes, Lumira just is like... And steals herself and then goes towards her room, sits down, Mm. and reaches underneath her pillow, pulls out that book that has been itching at her fingertips since she's got it. She hasn't taken a chance, hasn't gotten a chance to take a look at it yet, but now seems like more of a time than ever. So she like kicks off her boots and takes off her robe and sits directly in the middle of her bed, uh, cross-legged with the book spread out across her lap. That's right, Lumira, the book. The book that Elspeth Sanun agreed to lend you on a pretty dire condition. As you pull it out from underneath your pillow, we see a beautiful leather-bound tome 
the front of it is unlabeled. And I think this is the first time you've gotten the chance to actually crack it open, because you received it the day that you got your mission assignment. You haven't had the chance to look through it yet. You crack it open and it smells, instantly it smells old. You know that whatever this thing is, it's pretty ancient, but it's very well preserved. Thank you, Archives team at Trans. I love the smell of books. Yes, it's a lovely smell, right? Crack it open. The front of it has a title of the book. It's simply Research Log 1. You know it's not written in any language you've formally studied, but the magic that the oracle imbues your party with allows you to understand any language uh, that is recorded at the agency. So you know it's being translated for you in front of your eyes. Research Log 1. There is an author as well, but their name has been redacted. And all redacted portions are just like crossed out in black. Not actual physical black marker, but a magical black overlay that is impossible to lift. God damn it. Okay. Um, I will double check the back of the page just in case <laughs> nope, to see nothing. if there's yeah. like any like bleed through <laughs> like on the, the page after that to see if there's like any indentation of the name. Nothing. Okay. Nope. All right. Yeah, nothing. Yep. <sighs> all right. Table of contents. There is a small table of contents. There are only several sections. There's a foreword, part one, an introduction to chronergy. Part two, the fundamental truth. Part three, the limitations of chronergy. And part four, practical applications. I don't think you've ever heard the term chronergy before. Lumira closes the book, puts it down on her lap, and sits there for a bit longer than she would actually like. And like shakes her head like, what the hell is chronergy? And we'll go directly back into the book and start at the forward. The forward. You open it, immediately you see that 95% of it is redacted. Like it's the first paragraph and then everything else is blacked <sighs> out. <laughs> but you can read the part that is not redacted. And it reads, my name is redacted. And this is a record of my research. I don't anticipate anyone except Redacted will read this, so I'm not going to format my findings all professional-like. I just need a place to document them and talk to myself. Talk to everything skip, else Skip, 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 yep, skip, 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 most mortals believe that time is a linear progression of cause to effect. While this is not exactly untrue, it is also a narrow and subjective perspective. Time can be altered, to a degree, by mages with the discipline, patience, and drive to hone their craft. That said, it would be arrogant and deluded to fancy ourselves the lords of time, Time obeys no mortal. It is not a question of control or mastery. It is a question of redacted. Over the years, I have met chronergists who fail to grasp this fundamental truth. They may make temporary gains in their calling. And calling here is capitalized as well, the exact same way that the agency categorizes magic. But ultimately, all of them will suffer. I'll talk more about how to actually harness time magic in part two. Part three will probably discuss the limitations of chronergy, the crucial thing it cannot, or rather should not do. And part four will discuss what time magic can do. That's the end of part one. Well, I'll be damned. 
And I think she sits back at that. And I think she reads that first part a few times to make sure she understands what she's getting at. And I think her mind keeps getting stuck by the drive to do it. And she smirks. I think it's probably the first time you, the first time today you've seen her genuinely smirk. And then she goes on to read part two. Part two, the fundamental truth. The entire part is redacted. She like picks the book up and is slamming it against her forehead. Like you can't be fucking serious right now. And I think she just like slams the book shut in frustration and goes, I am going to rip Elspeth a new one when I see her next. (sighs) And then goes on to part three. (laughs) Part three, the limitations of chronergy. Much of chronergic literature insists our craft is a lonely one. According to them, to walk the path of time is to walk a railroad track where there is only ever one route and the cars can only ever move forward. Chronergists are able to see that there is a track in the first place, a rule of the journey, and this is capitalized, that most intuitively understand, but only a few can truly deconstruct. But we cannot move the iron from its fittings. Our unique perspective and our limited capacity dooms us forever to be on the outskirts of our communities, hence our lonely nature. But I disagree entirely with these self-imposed aspersions. I have been throughout my life an elementalist, an alchemist, a witch of the woods, a tinkerer, a biologist, even briefly a molecular mixologist, so I can say with utmost authority that no other discipline comes close to chronergy. The study of time magic is exhausting, yes. It demands the full attention of your body, mind, soul. But it is incredibly enriching, indisputably rewarding, and most of all, a labor of love. First, to dispel a common myth about our calling. There are no parallel universes. There is only ever one journey, and there is only ever one you. The journey is filled with nigh-infinite realities, but none of them repeat, and all of them are unique. The choices we make do not create branching timelines. They simply advance the train along its track. What could is forever lost to the endless void of oblivion. And oblivion is capitalized. That word stands out to you as a trans agent. In other words, going back in time is ill-advised. I've heard of time mages who tear themselves apart trying to undo a past mistake. It is one of the greatest dangers of our calling. I have never attempted it myself and I do not intend to ever do so. I believe it would endanger not only myself, but the very fabric of time. And that's the end of part three. That's a possibility? That can be done? And I think she sits in that again for a second before she looks over across the room at her discarded robes, her trans uniform. She knows fucking with time in general directly 
is not trusting her will, fates, will. But that nagging want, that need to understand more, that knack for knowledge pushes her directly back into the book. The last part, part four, is titled Practical Applications. All of it is completely redacted. There is a note at the very back of the book as you frantically flip through this research log. It is a handwritten note on basically like a little sticky card from Elsbeth in her looping, kind of condescending scrawl. And you just hear her voice reading the words coming off of the sticky note that say, if you want more, you know how to reach me. And there is a scribble of a winking oracle. Zynan. How do you pass your time on Storm Chaser? After going to the observation tower and keeping watch for a while and seeing the ends of that stampede kind of vanish into the distance um, and helping Abasi get a heading and all of the important things to actually make the ship run, um, he finally takes a break and goes below and reluctantly, for fear that it will speak, in his quarters alone, summons the Oracle. <laughs> he keeps on thinking about the conversation that he hasn't had yet, and the one that the longer he is in the company of a certain healer, the more he thinks, maybe he should have answered this question before they left on this mission. Mm-hmm. The Oracle, and a shimmer of magic swirls into existence above your palm. This tiny little orbitus creature, Weapon, tool, object, location? Not weapon, no. The tool, object, location, creature. Uh, swirls into existence, shimmering all kinds of different colors. Uh, and it says, Oh, oh hey, hello! Oh, oh, I've, I've not talked to uh, Strike Team Nova in quite some time. I've been lonely. Can I help you? Do you want to play chess with me? I'm unbeatable. I'm not strong at chess. Uh, hello, Oracle. Oh, that's too bad. I would enjoy crushing you nonetheless. Hello! Someday I will probably let you do that. Uh, in the meantime, I would very much like to contact Naeem from Struck Team Phoenix, if you wouldn't mind. Oh! Oh, this will be my first time ever doing a cross planar uh, contest! This is so exciting! Uh, yes, Naeem! Yes, 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 I can do that. Um, uh, okay, I need you to hold an image of him strongly in your head. And then I will tap into your mind, please do not freak out. And I will mind link the two of you through his oracle as well. Zynan summons a less clothed than normal mental image of Naeem. <laughs> oh, I see that. Oh, oh, okay. Um, all right. Okay, here we go. Uh, I'm going to go to sleep now. Have fun talking. But I'll actually be listening. I have to listen. I have to keep a record of everything that you say. But okay, goodbye. Ooh, dee 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 dee. <laughs> And the oracle surface flashes um, blank and begins to blink with the dee 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 dee. Uh, it goes for a while. You think Come that? On, it, name. You, yeah, it goes for like 30 seconds. Like dee 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 And then, hmm. And appearing in the oracle is Naeem's face. All of his face most of his upper body and a little bit of like the background. And you know that this is 
his oracle, strike team Phoenix's oracle, like probably floating around and following him around. He looks active. Uh, he looks like in the, he's oh. in the middle of something. Uh, you see a magic flashing around him. There's also snow swirling. He has his calligraphic brush out and is writing on sutra paper and occasionally flinging it out. You can hear in the distance what sounds like Cove and Amaru shouting. Uh, and there's some kind of fight happening, but it does like stay on Naeem's face this entire time with like a perfect uh, rhythm and cadence. Ugh. Now is really not a good time, Zynan. Cove duck! Naeem, I just, listen, I read your note. I'm, I'm sorry it took so long. My note, my, oh, my note. And he pauses and finally looks at the Oracle and looks at you rolls his eyes, goes back to doing the brush thing and the magic thing this entire time he's moving. Finally decided to open it and confront me, did you? A little too little too late, I think, Zai. Listen, I I wasn't sure what it was about, and if it was just between you and I, it could have waited. Sorry. But if it's about Lumira, I should probably find out what's going on. What's going on with Lumira, huh? Yeah, well... Uh, there is a lot that I have to account for. Right now, this fight, you, I just, this is a bad time, Zainan. This is a remarkably- Naeem, I'm sorry. And we see Naeem, like, throw out a bunch of sutra papers, and then everything gets really quiet in a way that's kind of scary. Turns and fixes his attention on you. Zainan looks to the ground. <laughs> Let me guess. The only reason you're coming to me now is because something has happened with Lumira. A lot has been happening. We are on a Mayday mission. What did you need to tell me about my teammate, please? Naeem kind of narrows his eyes at you, pauses, regards you. And in this moment, Zainan, how do you feel about Lumira? Genuinely. Zainan has a pretty strong veneer that unfortunately Naeem can see straight through. And with everybody else, he seems calm and cool and collected, but what Naeem actually sees is concern and with an edge of fear. Zainan is not a arcanely inclined person. Um, there are plenty of other things that he is quite wonderful at, but he does not study any sort of magic in the way that one studies magic. And on occasion, he has a little bit of fear around it just because he fully does not know how to defend himself against it sometimes. And there is a level of that in it, this power that he does not comprehend. But I think beyond that, even it is a fear of someone who has fire behind their eyes that he recognizes. Yeah, Naeem gets all of that from just a look, looking at you, narrowing his eyes. You feel like maybe sometimes he can telepathically peer into your soul. You're not sure if it's magic, his magic, or if it's just how much he knows you in a way that no one at the syndicate really does. Pauses, goes on to say, of course you're scared of her. You're scared of anything that you can't understand. I wanted to talk to you, Zynan because I see you in her. I know she thinks I fear her like you fear her. I know she thinks, she may even think that I hate her. 
because of what happened. But I don't. What did happen? That is not for me to share. That's for her to tell you. You're right. I also know, Zynan, that Lumira has never truly opened up to me. But you, you and her, you are so alike. You both push people away when really you should just talk to them. So maybe, maybe you can be the one who can get through to her. Be the one to get her to open up. Ask her about what happened with Amaru. The rumors at Trans say she's either malicious or incompetent, but I don't think either of those things are true. I don't either. Good. Just ask her, will you, Zai? And this is something for me to know and keep to my own self? Or am I on some mission for you? I'm not here to tell you what to do and what not to do. I'm. It's a request for you to keep an eye out for someone I care about a lot. Yeah, at least someone on this team has that. All right. <sighs> what you said more than annoyed, Naeem, that it seemed almost like there was like a kind of equilibrium that you'd reached, right? Almost like it, you were so close, you were almost there. It almost seemed like you could end this conversation on a pretty positive note. And then you said the thing, the self-deprecating thing, the thing that punched inward at yourself with a knife. And Naeem oh, grits his teeth, narrows his eyes, looks at you again. What's that supposed to mean? Why don't you have a nice rest of your mission? I'll see you back at Trans. You try to close the oracle, but Naeem like raises a hand. The oracle starts to shut, but then thing, it like blinks back open. You, you really think you're the responsible one, don't you, Zainan? Pretending like repressing your feelings is the same as being aware of them. LSSG's poster child who can help everyone else. But Zai, you can't even help yourself. You're a fucking mess. You need to get your shit together, okay? Not for you, but for her. For everyone else caught up in your fucked up, arm's length, pessimistic orbit. I hear you. The fact that you are not blowing up at him, the fact that you're not giving anything more than this stone-walled shutdown, causes Naeem's eyebrow to twitch, clenches his jaw, right? Light glistens on that single horn protruding from his forehead. He turns and just goes, and call. And then whoosh, the oracle turns blank. As the light diminishes, diminishes Zainan stares into the wall, willing himself to move, but he can feel Naeem's words freezing him in place because he can be stony and he can hold it all in, but he can hear it. Mm. Sayer, how do you pass the time on Storm Chaser? Sayer was kind of hovering along the ship, helping out Abasi wherever he could with, he did just put a bunch of electricity into the wires. They need to be redone again. So he spent a bit of time there. He looked hopefully over to Zainan for a moment, but saw that Zainan was walking with great purpose and decided not to be caught in whatever that was. 
So Sayo, I think while kind of like fixing what's left of the wire, his hands still shaking from the static, uh, looks to Abasi really quick and just says, Earlier, um, my shadows, they, you saw, did, did you see? But see your shadows? It's not exactly something I pay attention to, and I was in the middle of, you know, trying to get our ship away from a potential fucking leviathan. If you saw multiple shadows, nothing to be scared of. I mean, when light casts in multiple directions, doesn't I, it make multiple you shadows? You don't have to be like an that? ass about Science. it, Abasi. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know. You can never be too sure. <laughs> he, he like, rolls his eyes and just, like, gives Abasi a, a look of that clearly communicates, all right. <laughs> Asshole meets asshole. I see your game. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's uh, it's been a night and a day. Uh, Sing's up in the uh, crow's nest right now. If you want to take some time off, you know, decompress. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go check on her really quick. Thanks, Bossy. He will kind of hop off the area where Abasi is at with the uh, steering wheel and head up towards the observation deck. Just so... This thing's been acting really weird. Even Sayer knows that. And just a quick check-in. Just make sure she's all right. Yes, I think this is after her conversation with Umira. So she's kind of like dangling her legs over the edge of the deck, right? Fiddling with some of the instruments, letting the air rustle through her mane. As you kind of poke your head up over the top railing, she turns and looks at you and says, Oh! Hey, Sayer. Wow, the air up here is so fresh, isn't it? And she appears, for all intents and purposes, like her old self again. There's still a little bit of edge of contemplation, but you get the sense that she's done some, maybe some self-regulating of some kind and is up here and trying to just move on. He doesn't come up fully because he senses that like she's, I'm sure these siblings have spoken before and connected. And it does look like she's mostly over it. So Sarah kind of like rests his arms onto the observation deck floor and just says, you all right? Yeah, yeah, I... <sighs> I mean, that dream was a lot all for all of us, so... Yeah, it was. Um, I did some journaling about it. Uh, and I had, I had a good talk with Lulu downstairs. Um, oh. I'm, I'm okay now. I, I'm mostly okay now, Sayer. It's just, I, I... This mission's really tough. And I know, it's a Mayday mission. It's it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be the most challenging mission any of us have been on so far. But it's just, uh... I guess I'm just glad I have a great team by my side. Yeah. I've never seen you so bothered about something. And he, like, pulls himself up? Yeah! <laughs> It's, it's, it's nothing. It was just the dream about the, um, the fire and the oil and the, and the ash. I mean, fire is so dangerous here out in the Verdancy. You know, it's, that's all. Sayer feels that, whether intentionally or not, that word cuts him too. Yeah, fire is dangerous. I... You, you can talk to me, you, you know that, right? And there's like a wall that's coming up. Like he's saying that mm. out of habit, but there's something that's closing off in his chest. Y you can chat with me. If you don't have to hide anything from me, you know that, right? 
right? Yeah. Um, actually, and Singh turns to look at you as you say that, and there's a look on her face like, she's going to tell you everything, Sayer. She's going to tell you everything about why she was behaving so weird today, why she's been behaving so weird up until this point, what happened in the office with Artemis, what her dream was really about. She's going to tell you everything, and then she sees the wall. She sees the wall on your face. She sees it rise up and close over your heart. Her mouth pauses slightly open and then she closes it and smiles in a way that's almost sad and says, I just, I'm just really sad about the grits. The grits, huh? Yeah, they were really yummy. I hope there's more where that came from. Abasi said there was an entire sack, so I feel pretty optimistic about that. Just the grits. And you're fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, same for you, right? Just the nightmare that happened, fight with Lulu, and you're fine, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm fine. Then yeah, I'm, I'm fine too. Okay. We're both fine. I'll leave you to this. Uh, I'm sure Bossy's going to start yelling something at me. Bossy's always yelling. Kind of like that about her. Oh, actually, wait, look, do you see that? And Sing points out at the horizon. And Sayer, as you cast your gaze forward, you see something that I think sends like an icy chill running through your veins. You see the thing the stampede was fleeing from. It's horrific. Sprawled out before you, hundreds of feet wide, dozens of feet deep, is a completely demolished area of the northern swell. The entire upper layer of the verdancy, the thrash, is missing. The canopy, gone. The edges of this destruction hewn in these sloppy, uneven chunks. You see bare branches, snapped twigs, sawdust, and most of all, streaks of oil. Black, thick oil hanging from ruptured branches like obsidian blood. Oil smearing shorn down trunks. Oil dribbling in deep, goopy pools in the lower layers of the canopy. No wonder a stampede of beasts was fleeing this place, their home. These layers and layers of greenery and vegetation has been completely strip-mined. Undulating in this hole that's been carved out before you is the Tangle, the next layer of the verdancy that few wild sailors ever dare venture. Dozens of feet beneath the thrash, the Tangle is a realm of darkened leaves, thick shadow, and even thicker crescerin. Sunlight rarely, if ever, penetrates into the tangle, so to see it now, laid bare before you, feels like sacrilege. Stormchaser approaches closer and closer, and Abasi kind of pulls her to a halt a couple dozen feet away. She hovers there, her voltaic runners filling the air with the sharp, clean scent of electricity that is now clashing against the stench of oil just hitting you in a wall. And you can see the broken branches of the thrash struggling to repair themselves before your very eyes. The dripping sap which powers the Verdancy's ultra-fast recovery seems to be corrupted by this thick smear of gas. 
It seems like it's been at least hours since this has happened, because it's taken you hours to get here, which would usually be enough time for the Vertidzi to just regrow with no problem. But that's not happening. Not here. The plants are trying to grow back, and some are even succeeding, but very, very, very slowly. You see a handful of flowers trying to bloom from a pile of sawdust and broken twigs, but they look like they're in pain. In this strip-mined area of the northern swell, the verdancy is suffering. Whatever did this left a trail, and a clear one at that. You see a rough, violent path cutting west, full of broken branches, sawed-up leaves, and thick black globs of oil. A deeper path cuts parallel to it as well, seeming to have moved through the tank and you immediately think of that massive ship all of you felt rocking underneath Storm Chaser. By now, Singh has sounded some kind of alarm. She's like shouting down for like uh, Lumira and Zainan to come back up. Abasi is also shouting, right? So at this point, Zainan and Lumira, you kind of surfaced above deck and seen all of this as well. Even as Singh kind of like holds you gingerly like in the, on the back for a second, Sayer, and she starts climbing down, right? To like greet the rest of your party. Abasi comes out from behind the steering wheel, and I think all of you congregate mid-deck, looking out at this vast scene of destruction. And I want to know how each of you are responding to it, starting with Lumira. I think Lumira is looking on in complete and total shock. I think uh, from what she knows of the Wild Sea so far and what she's come across, she shouldn't be able to see underneath that well and is also more worried about what exactly is this that can cut through the way it is and leave the trail that it is and also leave the same type of destruction. But also there's that pinging in the back of her mind about the effect that whatever was down there previously what it had on the ship and how can a ship react the way I would in a situation like that. I think we pan across and now find Sayer as you like kind of dismount the last rung of the ladder. How are you responding to this destruction? There's the heat again. He couldn't keep it buried this time watching us this oil slicks and suffocates the growth of something beautiful. And there's a moment where Sayer feels that burning, that urge to just burn all that away. Let these plants breathe again. And then there's a fear where he feels that and, and buries it down, he clutches against his chest, his tail swishing in contemplation, and buries it deep, but he looks upon the rest of this with a tragic sadness, a violation. And we pan now over to Zainan. How are you responding to this destruction? Unbidden from all of the rage tangled up in the conversation he had with Naeem and all of the chaos of the day, he just hears protect our home. And 
he sets his jaw firmly and looks over the destruction. And it's not burning, it's not ash, but it may as well be the same dust that he felt, that he feels all the way down into his bones. And all he can think is how this has to stop. Mm. Sing tentatively approaches the railing, looking out over this scene of devastation with wide eyes. <sighs> evil. This is just pure evil. Who could... What could do this to this place, this beautiful place? And she clenches her fist over the hilt of her longsword, her back to all of you. None of you can see the expression on her face, but there is a steel in her voice that rarely comes, but when it does, the chosen one always steps forward. A bossy standing there looking out over the destruction of her home, right? Her mouth is a gall, her eyes are wide, she's kind of like like tearing at the roots of her hair uh, with like fists at the back of her neck. She's just kind of going like, I don't, this is, this is sick. This is sick. This is, what the hell is that? And she lowers her hands distracted for a half second, narrowing her eyes at something else, yet something fucking else on the Southern horizon. And sure enough, so small that they're barely larger than a fingernail but growing larger with every passing second, all of you on Storm Chasers see what appear to be a fleet of ships. Ships on the Wild Sea itself and ships in the air with huge billowing sails that make them look like birds. And Abasi freezes, her mouth falls open. Are those, are those fucking Raya warships? And then the oracle swirls into existence in the middle of your party as a seed pod. And it chirps cheerfully. New mission update. Stop the war between Raya and Siren Song. And as all of you take this in, you hear Abasi's voice, low and heavy, break through this silence. She kind of leans back on her heels and says, Fuck. We're too late. Are you a proud transplanerd? Do you want everyone to know you're an Endake University alum? Do you want to wear our logo but super goth and full of void? Then check out our brand new merch collab with Void Merch and nab one of three exclusive designs. Check out the link in the episode description and go trans your gender with our fresh new threads. This episode was edited by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our original intro theme music is by Jonathan Charles. Transplaner RPG is supported by our incredible Patreon precepts. Folks pledge to our highest tier on Patreon. A massive thank you to Charles, Cora Eckert, Brooke Bright, River, Chiakres, Lex Slater, Scrofasis, Hat, Alex, Mark J, Lyle and Peanut, Spencer, Brooke in Seattle, Aria, Derek Davidson, Phil, Jordan, Cassidy, and Rose. Pledge to our Patreon today for as little as $3 a month to unlock exclusive news, character sheets, GM notes, and even the chance for your tabletop OC to cameo in our show. Until next time, Transplay Nerds!